true for us. He would be the greatest treasure, the wellspring of our soul. And in having you, we would have no other, Lord, and truly be satisfied in you alone. That type of hope, that type of trajectory of life is going to bring you glory and it will be most satisfying to us as well. And it will sustain us through all the different seasons of life. So help us to grasp it, to see it, to love it, to embrace it tonight. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm thankful for passages like this. <clears throat> We're going to be in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36 tonight. Verse 30 has always been one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. John's declaration of, He must increase, but I must decrease. But even, I think it's grown even more dear to me this week in studying it as I see just more clearly the context in which it's couched in. Um, I'm thankful to the Lord for him being able to um, help me receive what it is that he says to us in this text, and I hope it's something that uh, you'll truly be able to receive as well. Tonight's message is titled, Piety and Perspective. Piety and Perspective. Piety just being an old-fashioned word for reverence, holiness. Um, we see that clearly displayed in John the Baptist tonight. And he, to be sure, he has this piety because of the perspective that he has which we see in our text as well. Um, I, want to, I want for us to jump, kind of just go ahead and jump into it tonight um, and to see these things in Scripture and really just praying that um, the Lord is going to continue to, to help us, um, you know, really have a heart that is, that is revealed in this text for us. So I want to read John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. And then I just want for us to notice a few things in it tonight that I, that I pray are helpful for us. John 3, verse 22, beginning, says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing near Enon, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. 
The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Um, as someone who is in full-time pastoral ministry, um, this is a real struggle. It can be a real struggle. And I don't think that I'm alone. I think that anybody who serves in any kind of ministry capacity can hopefully see and identify with the struggle that's that is being fleshed out here, being revealed, and ultimately being remedied for our good. We see the setting here. I just want us to kind of set the stage. We see in verses 22 through 26, Jesus has left Jerusalem. He's gone into the Judean countryside. He's remained there with his disciples, and, and they are baptizing. You actually see that later on in chapter 4, verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples so his disciples are baptizing. He's out in the Judean wilderness. John was also doing his ministry, baptizing in Enon, near Salim, because water was plentiful and people were coming out to being baptized. But a discussion arises between John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, I had always assumed that John's disciples were correcting the Jewish man on his perspective on purification, but actually looking at the text, I think it's the opposite. I think it's the other way around, especially when we consider what John's disciples say in verse 26, and we get a, an idea as to what their perspective is and what's valuable to them. They go to Jesus, they, excuse me, they go to John in verse 26, and what's their concern? Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. People, they're not coming to us anymore. They're going to him now. They're, they're being baptized by him. And so this, this, this discussion, which the word has been translated in many other parts of the New Testament as controversy, or um, them having a discussion that may, may just be the nice way of putting it. We don't know if it was a heated debate, a controversy, or if it was just a discussion. But what we do know is that it revolves around purification, and it ends up being a conversation about Jesus and him drawing people away from John and from them. And we know 
that John sees what their concern is and labels it as being a false concern, a a misguided perspective, a a, a ministry um, evaluation and exaltation that is misplaced. John Calvin says this about the disciples, John's disciples, by sinful ambition, they undertake to defend the cause of their master against Christ. They are more concerned about John, their ministry leader, and the success of their ministry than they are about Jesus and the success of his ministry. And John's response to them, I think, is, it's, it, to me, personally, it is nothing short of astounding. That not only he would say what he says, but I believe that he believes it as well. You have to understand, like, think of this in context of your own personal life. Like, what if you've been laboring in a ministry for years, and it's kind of stayed the same, and then, and then someone new comes to the church and gets involved in the ministry, and God uses them to double the size of the ministry? How is that going to make you feel? Or, or what if... What if a new church comes into your town and the Lord doubles the size of your church in one year for his glory and you have been faithfully laboring away for 20 and remain the same? How are you going to feel about that? How do we feel when the Lord chooses to exalt another one of his servants for his glory over you? How does that make you feel? The challenge is that if you are truly doing it for the glory of God and his exaltation, you should rejoice in it. But the fact of the matter is is that we struggle to rejoice because there is more of us involved in our ministries than we care to admit. And this is why this is good for me to struggle with and to think through. That sets the stage for what John is, says, and we see his piety put on display in verses 27 through 30. His first, I want to notice four marks of piety. Number one, true godly piety reveals a dependence on God. See in verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. He's referring to himself. He's referring to his own ministry. I didn't, I didn't create this. This is what God gave me. No one can receive anything. I can't receive this ministry unless it's from God himself. And I'm completely dependent upon him for it. And it'll last as long as he wants it to last. And at some point, if he decides that my time has come and it's over and it's done, then so be it. It is the Lord. May he do what seems good to him. The first mark of of true godly piety is the dependence upon the Lord and recognizing that anything that we have, I'm not just talking about like in life, I'm talking specifically in this context of which John's ministry is shrinking because he is shrinking and Jesus is growing and he's being exalted. Any ministry that you have, 
It's been given to you by God. It is not yours. And so you steward it as well as you can for as long as he gives it to you. And you be ready to let it go and let the Lord do with it what he wills, when he wills, and how he wills. His work is divine work, and no one does any of it unless God gives it. Secondly, godly piety has sober reflection. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. We need to know our place. I am not the Christ. You are not the Christ. Jesus, he's the Christ. True godly piety knows their place and knows that you are not the Savior. The Savior is Jesus Christ. And his disciples point people to him, not to themselves. John sees him, himself as one who has been sent. He is a voice in the wilderness crying out, and that's it. Thirdly, godly piety rejoices in Christ's work. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I'm just a voice. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. The bride doesn't belong to the friend. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. And Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. And all of us are simply have a role and a part to play in his bride. But you are not the bridegroom, you are the friend. And the friend does what when the bridegroom calls the bride? Rejoices greatly. When the bridegroom chooses to use a friend, and that friend is not you, but he uses someone else to call in his bride, we rejoice. We don't get jealous. We don't get bitter. We don't get angry. We rejoice at the voice of the bridegroom, and we hear him calling and wooing his bride, and we rejoice and we celebrate in the bridegroom's work. Godly piety rejoices in the work of Christ. Fourthly, godly piety magnifies Christ over self, which is what we see in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He has to increase over us. He has to increase over our success over our gifts, over our victories. In all of it, we must have the mentality that he must increase. Let me tell you, do you know what a sign of ministry success is? Him increasing and you decreasing, right? That's why it must happen. Because if it doesn't happen, you're not doing ministry right. 
if, if we are the ones that receive all the praise and the thanks and the appreciation and the accolades, you are increasing, I am increasing, and he is decreasing. That is ministry failure. It doesn't matter how big you are, how many people you reach. If anything is magnified over Christ, it is failure. Ministry success is Christ increasing. Godly piety rejoices at Christ's work, and godly piety is focused on wants to see Christ increase and self decrease. It doesn't matter our age, doesn't matter our experience, it doesn't matter our accomplishments, doesn't matter your zeal. There are no rock stars in the kingdom of God. There are no celebrities. And if there are, then that place has lost its way. Psalm 145, verses 10, 11, 12, and 13 say this. All your works shall give you thanks, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Did you catch what all the saints shall do? They shall speak of the glory of the kingdom of God and tell of the power of God and make known to the children of man the mighty deeds of God and the glorious splendor of God and the everlasting part of the kingdom of God and his dominion being forever. That's what the saints glory in. That's what the saints do. That is godly piety. And that comes by proper perspective which is what we see in verses 31 through 36. The perspective that John has that breeds piety, the perspective that we must have in order to breed piety, I'm telling you, this is not something that you can create and do on your own. It comes by a proper perspective of the superiority of Christ. You have to truly see him that way in order for this to take place. And there are three things, three marks, three, three marks of perspective that we see. In the, and the first one being that Jesus is superior. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. He's, he's the man from heaven is the divine man. He is superior we are the earthly people. He's the one that comes to us from above. He is the one that imparts life. He is the one that John would say earlier, right, in John chapter 1, I baptize you with water, but he who is coming who will um, baptize us with the Holy Spirit. His ministry is superior than John's in every way, shape, and form. And guess what? His ministry is superior to yours and mine as well. We should have the perspective of the superiority of Christ. He, that he is above all. That should be our proclamation. The earth is his footstool. 
We are the people of his pasture, and we are simply thankful to be in the kingdom, let alone to have a a place to be used by the king in any way, shape, or form. Secondly, the perspective is not only is Jesus superior, but Jesus is true. Jesus is true, and we see this in verses 32 through 34. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. The one who is from above bears witness, and he says what he has heard from above. What the Son has heard in the eternal divine council room of the triune God. That's what he speaks. That's what he discloses to us. Think about what it is that you have in your hand. You have what has been disclosed to you and I, proceeding from the eternal divine council room of the triune God. Shouldn't his ministry increase? We're earthly. We speak in an earthly way. We speak regarding earthly things. But the one who is above is divine. He is above all. And he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. But this is the thing. Yet no one receives his testimony. So plunged in depravity and darkness and wickedness. That when the one from above descends and comes, when the creator comes to his creation, the creation cannot recognize him. And we do not receive his testimony. Why? Because of what we learned earlier. When the light comes, the darkness flees because our works are evil. We don't want to be exposed for who we truly are, what we truly value. But... Verse 33, the one, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal, his oath, his confidence to this, that God is true. It's the same dichotomy that's laid out for us earlier in verses 20 and 21. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. In the same way, verse 32 and 33, no one receives his testimony, yet there are some. Whoever does receive his testimony sets his, his seal, his confirmation to this. And what's the confirmation? God is true. It reminds me of in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God's telling Moses to go back to um, Egypt to deliver the people, and Moses says, who should I say sends me? And he says, I am. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that, God? You tell them the I am sent you. Like, I am me. I, I, I am, the, I am the, the immutable, unchangeable, eternal, divine. I, I, I am me. I am the one. I am, I am the unique one. There is nobody like me. I, I am God. What do, you want me to, what, do you want, what do you want me to say? Oh, well, I'm like this. Anything that I say the this is falls way short in comparison and even scratching the surface to begin to compare to who I am. You just tell them I am The simple, eternal, divine, immutable, unchangeable God. 
has sent you. And whoever receives sets the seal to this. God is true. He is who he is. And he has absolute sovereign freedom to be himself and to do all that he pleases. And if it means that I've got to decrease for him to increase, then may the Lord do what seems good to him. The perspective on the trueness of God, the, the, the only one that is actually free in every way possible. The sovereign, free, superior, I mean like however you, however the Bible describes this one God, the I am. He's the one that's at work. He's the one that receives the praise and the glory. And you have that perspective. And when he comes to you and he says, it's time for you to go. It's time for you to come home. Because his exaltation is what matters. May your will be done. That perspective breeds piety. For he whom God has sent utters, verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives a spirit without measure. Jesus is full of the spirit of God. His words are full of spiritual power and truth. And he utters the words of God because he is God. And thirdly, the perspective that we need to have is that he is loved and he is Lord. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son. I want us, who does the Father love? He loves the Son. How does he love you or I? Only through the Son. The Father loves the Son. So much so that in the divine economy of the Trinity, and somehow how this works out in the mysterious way of God, the Father gives all things into his hand. He, if he only loved the Son a little, he'd only give him a little. But because he gives him everything, he loves him supremely over everything. He is, he is the faithful manager of all things, the, the, the divine creator through whom all things exist, right? We learned this Colossians 1 on Sunday. For by him, through him, for him, all things exist. Hebrews 1, like he sustains everything. He upholds it by the power of his hand. You have the perspective that the Father loves the Son. And he loves, yes, he loves you, but it's through the Son. And, and do, you know what, do you know what God is doing through the Son? He's magnifying and exalting the Son. Do you know what God's first goal and priority in life is not? To magnify your ministry in your desires, in your church, in your outreach system, 
and your this or that, your program or whatever. I'm not saying that God doesn't use those things. I'm not saying that he doesn't care about those things. What I'm saying is he loves the Son, and those things exist, should exist to exalt him. You have that perspective, you can have piety, reverence, holiness. You hold everything loosely. And then the summary of the matter is wrapped up in verse 36. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Is that not enough? Is eternal life not enough? If that's all you have in the Son, is that not enough? But I want, I want this. And, and I want to go here, and I want to do that, and I want this ministry, and I want it to look like this, and I want to accomplish this, and I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to. You've got the Son. You have the one that the Father loves supremely most, and you have eternal life. Isn't that enough? And so you, so you, so you, so you have this perspective of who he is, and it breathes and cultivates this true godly piety within you to where you can truly say, if I'm going to pour myself into this, I don't need any results measured on my, on my terms so long as one thing happens. God is glorified. As long as he is glorified, that's what matters. Because I have eternal life and I'm going into the presence of the one who is glorious. I've got that one thing nailed. Isn't that enough? Pray that we are able to obey the Lord with a clear perspective and humble piety as we rejoice in who he is and what he has done. Let's pray. Father, we do, um, we do pray. Give us the perspective of the superiority of Christ, that he is true, that he is loved, and he is the Lord of all things. We rejoice in that. And we would be happy with just being a voice in the wilderness, happy just being the friend of the bridegroom, happy with whatever it is that we have received from you to, to use faithfully for you and for your glory and to steward it well and that we would be so devoted to your exaltation that when the time comes for, for us to go or for this to, to pass, we can rejoice that the bridegroom is still calling the bride. I thank you, Lord, for tonight. I thank you for this passage Work it in our hearts, Lord, genuinely for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing one more song together tonight?